Romans chapter 12. It's where we are. As we work through this section, I had hoped we would work through verses 12 and 13 this week. It didn't happen that way in the early service. So we'll work through part of verse 12 this week. We'll work through the balance of verse 12 and then 13 next week, God willing. But uh, as we come back to this study, you'll remember that last week we began with this idea, this whole section of uh, verses 9 through 21, dealing with the whole concept of love. And uh, as a matter of fact, verse 9 begins with that admonition, let love be genuine. Um, or as we, as we had it last week, love unhypocritical. Love unhypocritical. It's one, two words in the original, one thought that this genuineness brings us to the place where we can overcome evil with good rather than letting evil overcome good. It's a contraction, really. If you look at verse 9 and just use that first portion, let love be genuine, and then close off in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, you've got the, the central thing. And this becomes a central theme in the New Testament. As I mentioned last week, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, let me just read it to you out of the Phillips translation. The ultimate aim of Christian ministry, after all, is to produce the love which springs from a pure heart a good conscience, and a genuine faith. We want that love to be genuine. And of course, last week we started to work through the the central points there. Actually, we have a... I'm going to ask you to turn that fan down a little bit if you can too, Jim. Otherwise, we're we're not going to have pages here. Thanks. Um, And last week we looked at verses 9 through 11, the three elements of genuine love. That kind of started off this whole discussion This week we want to look at love toward God in verses 12 and 13. And this is a a topic that doesn't get discussed very much. It's fascinating to me. And I've got to tell you, my own study in this passage has been so fruitful for me personally. um, I really am kind of of hoping we'll, we'll be able to just draw as much out of it as we possibly can. And then, of course, in 14 through 20, love toward people. And last week we looked at those first elements in verses 9, 10, and 11. You can look at them again in in your passage. Let love be genuine. Genuine love requires that we abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. And it requires that we love one another with brotherly affection and outdoing one another in showing honor. And thirdly, it requires that we're not slothful in zeal, but showing, or pardon me, not slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That, that love's a very spiritual thing if it's not going to be hypocritical love. The love that the world has wears the mask. It looks like love. It sounds like love. It does certain actions like love. But compared to biblical love, God's love, it's hypocritical. It's only playing the part. It's not really getting down to things. And the bottom line, of course, being that that how can you truly love somebody and ignore their deepest need, which is their spiritual need? Because that's what we need, is to be reconciled to God and then in one another to be conformed to the image of God. So we went through that last week, and that's followed up, if you remember, in kind of building this paradigm for you. 
But this week, we're going to center on love toward God. What does it mean to love God, love toward God? That's a, an interesting thought. How does one love God? How do you love God? Not just whether or not you have emotion toward Him, because love carries more than that, but how does one love God actively a verb, as a verb or show Him love as he desires to be loved. All of us, in fact, have a certain measure of that. That brings us, really, to consider a little bit of the psychology of love from a biblical standpoint. Um, Because we, again, tend to think about things like love from a human standpoint only. But how do we show him love as he desires to be loved? The psychology of love, the way that you and I experience it, and then as we compare that to the body, is, is a very different dynamic. When, when I was uh, single for a number of years, I thought that what I was missing was being loved. And the heart feels empty when it thinks it isn't being loved. But that isn't true. That, in fact, is, is a false human dilemma. And I'll tell you why. We draw whether or not we're happy often by whether or not we feel loved. But God is the happiest of all beings. Not because he is loved, but because he loves. It is the pouring out. It is the loving that keeps him from being the most depressed being in the universe because who is more maligned? Who is more hated? Who is more ignored? Who is more blasphemed? Who is more misspoken about, miscast, misrepresented, and trounced on than God? And if his dependency for his own happiness was on whether or not we loved him, we would have a very miserable God in the universe. But you see, we've reasoned back up to God from ourselves, as we've talked numerous times in the last couple of weeks, instead of reasoning from God back down to us. And often, when we feel that sense of emptiness, it isn't because we aren't loved by people. We are. Like I said, for a number of years there, when I was single, I thought, oh, if I just had somebody to love me. No, no, no. I found out that before I knew Sky loved me, when I loved her, that's when I was full. And the truth is, that's when you and I are full. When we're loving. When we're pouring out. It's the, it's, it sounds opposite. It's counterintuitive to our human fallen nature. But it is the way God is. And He's in the process of restoring us to the image of Christ so that we love the way Christ loves. And He said, how else can you love your enemies? Because if you have to depend on them loving you... You're never going to get there. We'll have no love for them. Now, John is very clear in 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. The Holy Spirit causes the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts. But the fulfillment that we're looking for so desperately isn't in drawing it from someone else. It's by displaying it because that's what God loves to do. God is love and he shows his love. He pours it out, and he's not empty. 
even though often he's not loved in return. You see, now, when love is returned, reciprocation, that produces intimacy. We're going to get to that in just a second. But that isn't what we're talking about at the beginning here. We want to talk about what it means. How does a person show love to God in a way that's meaningful? What does that look like? Now, these phrases that are given to us here in verse 12 and verse 13 are interesting in how they're different from the phrases that come after them. Because when you read a phrase like, if love is being genuine here, as it starts off in verse 9, and then you get down to uh, verse 12, and it says, rejoice in hope, how is that loving to other people? How's that genuine love? It isn't to other people. It's love to God. There's a shift here in the focus. How does one love God? Love is both, and I think we all know this, love has an emotional component to it, affection. But that isn't really what what Paul is after here, because love is not only emotion, it's also action. And where he wants to get us is to the action. We're not dealing with the emotional part, and here's why. 1 John 4.17 says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us the the sense of the emotional part of our love toward god is resolved in the issue of justification and he pours out his love toward us and we see that and we respond to that emotionally but the chief way that that manifests itself is in the absence or the removal of fear now Y'all know Sky, she's just a little tiny thing, little itty bitty person. And and she married a hulking behemoth. Now, we get to talking together, and she has seen me at times angry, really angry. Probably more angry. Sarah saw me really, really angry once. She said, Dad, I never want to see that again. Nobody's ever seen me really, really angry but Sarah. And then Sky, and I think Sky may be the cause for some of that, but that's a, it's an entirely different sermon and other things we have to discuss at another time. But she's, she's seen me at my absolute worst in anger. Now, y'all husbands and wives, y'all still wrestle? I mean, Sky and I still wrestle. Y'all, y'all you should. If you don't wrestle, husbands, well, you should wrestle from time to time. But when we wrestle, the funny thing is she'll try and pin me down. And I'll say, oh, yes, yes, I'm pinned down. You know, and it's, it's like, I mean, this is like a mosquito attacking an elephant. All right. There's just nothing there. But she, she made the comment one day. Women really take their life in their hands marrying men. <laughs> you know, very true. Because they're physically helpless. In comparison, now she carries a gun, so that equals it off. But, but in comparison, she's physically helpless. If I were to go into a violent rage, I'd crush her like a Dixie cup. She just doesn't have any defense. Why in the world, then, isn't she scared when I get angry? 
because she knows I love her. Now, beloved, why does the Christian, even when he knows God's wrath will still be poured out, not live in fear because we know he loves us? See, perfect love casts out that fear. It's a wonderful thing. Every believer knows that experience. And if you're not a believer here this morning, you're living somewhere in that dimension. Oh, you try in dark hours to suppress it. But deep down, there is the nagging sense that someday a reckoning will come. And that you're going to have to face Him. And you have no assurance of His love for you. Oh, none. Oh, He demonstrates it. It's there, but you see, unless you love him, the emotional bond can't be there. That's what he does, is he gives us love for him when he saves us. We could not have a capacity to love him apart from regeneration. Our fallen nature loves ourselves first. See? But, but when, when you sleep at night, and there are times when you try to douse the ache, the emptiness, the fact that you know you're not full and you can't be because you don't love Him. When you try to douse it with alcohol or with drugs or with sex or with activity or just try to blot it out, you know deep down you have a right to fear Him because wrath is coming. The Christian has had that completely removed. Only the believer knows the joy of the perfect love that has cast out all fear. You see? That's, that's where we're meant to live. Not looking over our shoulder, not constantly second-guessing, not worrying, boy, when, when is the next shoe going to drop? But justified by faith, fear's been removed, and our hearts are flooded with the sense that He loves us, and loving affection for Him has been birthed there. But that's only half the equation. Love is not only the emotion, it's also the action. And so how do we tie that together? How do we make sense out of that when it comes to loving someone you can't see? Loving someone who's not around you? Loving someone who, who doesn't have a body that you can, you can touch? Sometimes that's where religion has gone really wrong because it has then equated love with God with naked obedience. And that always becomes a slavishness. That's never the right way, not the biblical way. That always has the cart in front of the horse. We draw it naturally because we're looking at certain passages of Scripture from our, our fallen perspective. We, that portion we had read for us out of John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And how do we understand that? Well, God says, the way that you show me you love me is by keeping my commandments. But in fact, the, the sentence structure, and in the Greek language especially, it functions a little differently than that. John Calvin on this passage is extraordinarily fascinating, but it's a long quote and I don't have time. The idea, though, in the way that Jesus is expressing it is more this. Love me. That's how you keep my commandments. Love me. That's why love is the fulfilling of the law. We're going to go over that in a few weeks in the balance of, of Romans 13. That, that's what he means by that. Yes, they're connected, but it's not a, a, a tit for tat. 
John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In 14.23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. And then in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. But that is not naked obedience. How do I know that? Because in John 15.2, he sets it in its right order. This is my commandment. What? that you love one another as I've loved you. It is in the loving that the commandments get fulfilled, not by doing the commandments, love gets fulfilled. Whenever we have that backwards, we always end up in legalism. You see? And that's, that's exactly the opposite of where he wants us. Love, trust me, I would not do half the stuff I do in life, period, if it weren't for the fact that my wife had me wrapped around her little finger. It's far more bondage than outright commands could ever be. Love enslaves the heart willingly, which is what God is after in us. You see, Jesus served the Father not because, oh, I've got to do everything right. He loved the Father and thus He acted. But it's the love as the motivation as that worked out in His life. Now, this part of the dynamic of loving God by keeping the commandment of loving one another, that's where we're going to go in the next section, 14 through 20. We were going to do that, start that next week. Actually, we're going to bump that for another week, and then we'll uh, we'll take two weeks to work through that. But see, Paul is after something a lot different here. He's wanting us to experience intimacy with God, He has poured His love out to us. And how do we see it? How do we know it? We look at the cross. I mean, how can you miss that? Greater love has no man than this. This is, this is the love of man for man. In its deepest, it would be, I would lay down my life for you. But I've got to tell you, I do not love anyone to the degree that I would lay down my daughter's life for you. See? But that's how God loves. That's a whole other category. That's so far beyond our ability to comprehend. He wants us, Paul does in this passage, to be living with God in such a way that we're communicating our love for Him and drawing near to Him in it. Uh, over the Christmas vacation last year, Sky um, thought she'd have a little fun and she went out to the bookstore and she bought a bunch of books that I, wouldn't, I would never have bought and would never have read if it was not that my wife said, please read these. Uh, no, she, she bought them just for fun, said these, these would be fun things to read through and, and so I did. And one of the books that she bought was a a book by Gary Chapman. Some of you may have it. It's The Five Languages of Love. It's not a really deep book, and in some places it's not a, a, a biblically strong book by any stretch of the imagination. It's not, not one that I recommend as, as, a, as a number one uh, go-getter if you want, you want biblical help for your marriage. But what I did find in it was that I thought there, there's a right character uh, characterization here that each of us um, has a different way 
in which we, a language that is the metaphor he uses, uh, of what makes us feel loved by, the, uh, by other people. Certain things that we do. He, he has five in the book. Uh, words of affirmation. Some people don't really feel loved, or they do feel loved when they hear words of affirmation, but they need those. They need that kind of stuff. I worked for a guy, Ernie, my boss back at Johnson Rose, and I'd been working for him for about six months, and Ernie was the kind of guy who would kind of grunt and look at you out of the top of his glasses and walk on. And one day I walked into his office. I said, Ernie, I have no idea if if you're satisfied with the job I'm doing for you. And he said, have I complained? I said, no. And he said, well, you're doing fine until I tell you different. Now, that's, that's the way you had to work with this guy. He was not about to affirm you about anything. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you don't affirm other people, but maybe the other person is, is living for that. They need that sense of affirmation in order to, to feel that they're, they're getting that. that. That's a normal human thing. Uh, we can't live there, but we experience it. It's just part of life. For other people, it's quality time. Spend time with me. FaceTime. Um, my, my little brother, I think I've told the story before, Scott, since he's not here, I can embarrass him publicly. And, but when he was, when he was really little and, and he was talking to you and you didn't really pay attention to him, you could be listening and you know how we do. We're, we're busy. We're doing other stuff. But, but Scott would walk up to you and he would take your face and he'd say, look at me. Speak to me, I think is what that's about. He wanted that, that face-to-face, and sometimes we need that. Some people, that's what speaks to them more loudly. For others, it's receiving gifts. Sky's like that. She loves, well, no, I take that back. Um, she likes acts of service. So, th- th- matter of fact, the other day, and I've told you I, I love pens. We were talking about that a little bit. And uh, so I, I, I have this pen that Sarah gave me. Uh, a few years ago, and I love this pen. I carry it all the time, but I never wrote with it and much. And but I finally, I finally got it out, and I went to the store and I found this super duper incredible new refill. This gel ink that's just—it's better than Belgian chocolate. It's just great. And so I bought this refill and I took it home and I'm writing with this pen. I'm saying, "Oh, Sky, you got to try this. It's, it's like an—it's an experience. I mean, it's like—it's like going on vacation. It's really—it's awesome." So she sits down and she writes with it. She goes, wow, that's incredible. I love that. She goes, can you get me one of those? And I said, absolutely. So I went on eBay and found the cheapest version of it I could get and bought it right away and, and gave it to her. And she, and she instantly said, oh, this is lovely. I love this. But, but when she gets a gift, it's kind of a gift and it's done. But if she says, will you take out the garbage? And I take out the garbage, she feels love. Some of you have different ways that, that that speaks to you. I don't know. For some, it's physical touch. So I read through the book, and I figured out hers, her love language really was acts of service. That really does speak to her. And mine is words of affirmation, and they were just rolling off her back like a duck. She could care less. She's got a, she feels real good about herself. So I, I wasn't one telling her anything very good. Right? She read the book. She said, I have no idea what yours is. I read the book and said, I have no idea what mine is either. I think... They need more languages or somebody needs to speak in tongues because I'm stuck. I don't know what the language is. That's it's all useful to a degree. But if I, if I can, the question we've got to get to is, 
What, again, what does it really look like for us to love God? What does He delight in from us? Haven't you ever asked yourself the question, what does God want from me? And felt that you can never do that? Never figure it out? And, it's, and yet it's in the showing of love that we find fulfillment. And so when we figure out, when God gives us insight into that, it isn't that He's empty without it, but in our showing it after having received His love, that starts to build intimacy with Him. And He wants that. He wants us to draw close to Him. So we find in this first one, right here, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Uh, let, me, let me draw that down to one more statement. It's to believe His promises to the degree that they inform our state of mind. Where it really impacts us. Where we say, God has said this, and I believe that's true, and I use that to reckon with life. He desires that from us. On Easter Sunday, you remember that I spoke on, or maybe you don't remember, but I spoke on the hope of glory out of Romans 4. That He has given us this great hope. This, and the word hope in the original, LPS means to, to have a joyous expectation. And the, the hope of glory that Christ has given to us is that one day we're going to see His glory. And not only are we going to see it in its, all of its unveiled resplendence and all of its magnificence, but we're going to bear His glory. We'll be conformed fully to the image of the Son. And then not only that, but we'll be elevated to rule and reign with Him and we'll share His glory. And there'll be the, the fullness of what that means to drink it all in and lastly to enjoy His glory. That's the hope that He set before us. And He's saying, make that real in your life. Don't count that as some comic book promise. But look at that and say, that's worth living a certain way for. That's glorious. He loves that. It's to believe Him so as to make the the foundation of our lives the reality that He will still fulfill His promises to us. Every last one of them. Completely. Absolutely. And without failure. How do you know that? Because when man fell in the garden, and he said, the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent's head, it didn't matter what it took 4,000 years later, that seed of the woman came and bruised the serpent's head. And he doesn't forget His promise. He says, believe me. I'm not lying to you. In 1 Peter, Peter says that we are born again to a a lively hope that there is an inheritance stored up in heaven for us. That's, that's meant to inform the way we go through what we go through now. It's not to minimize what we go through now in the slightest. We, 
And there's many here. If we were to sit down and, and make the accounts public right now, how many of you are struggling with all sorts of tragedy and grief and perplexity and doubt and fear and, and wrestling with things you never dreamed you'd wrestle with in your entire life? And he says, I don't minimize it for a moment. But the, the Paul who knew what it was to be beaten within an inch of his life and taken up dead once, to be shipwrecked the way he was, to be in all of those places where he had gone through, just as we heard Dr. Nettles talk about uh, two weeks ago, the, the same one who went through that said, let me tell you, this this affliction that I'm going through now is momentary and it's light. Not in itself. What we endure now hurts on every level, sometimes excruciatingly and crushingly. But that is to be weighed against an eternal weight of glory set up for us. An inheritance, Peter says, that carries three qualities with it. First, it's imperishable. And secondly, it's undefiled. And thirdly, it's unfading. And the idea behind those descriptive words are, it's imperishable, that that what he has stored up for us is permanent satisfaction versus all the temporary that we've experienced here. And secondly, that it's undefiled, it's pure, it's unmixed. There's nothing in it that can ever corrupt. And the satisfaction we'll have there is absolutely pure and unmixed. How even our highest joys here are mixed in with sorrow and grief, aren't they? But not there. And that, and that it's unfading. The word in the original there gives the idea of something that's always fresh and lovely. It never dims in its vibrancy and attractiveness. It's a perennial satisfaction. He says, I want you to think about this now. Uh, Paul even uses these words. Just as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen and what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And this is what he's saying. Rejoice in your hope. Do you want to love me? Do you want to show me that you love me? Believe my promises. They're real. They're authentic. And they never fail. I never blow it. I can't sin against you. I can't lose it. Ever. So believe me. That's what he wants. Oh, how he delights to be believed. It is true, no matter what we say, that in life and in relationship, nothing is more destructive to intimacy between two people than lack of trust. If you can't believe the other person, If they aren't truthful, you're separated from them. The wall is up. And there's no way around it. Why is God so invested in being believed? Why is that so important to Him? 
Why, why, does, that, why does that give him, if, if we can use it in the human sense, I understand it's different with God, but if we can use it respectfully in the human sense, why does that make God feel loved in that sense? Because it was a lie that brought every drop of misery and suffering and pain that you and I experience into the world. Because in the garden, he said, don't eat of that tree. You will die. And we said, we think he's telling us the truth and not you. And the relationship was shattered. In our rebellion, in our sin, we were separated from Him. And this, and the very first thing then, he, he brings us back to the garden and says, listen to me, this is why God hates sin so. Do you realize why He hates it so? Because the creature that He made in His image, that He loves supremely. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that the Father loves us with the same love that he has for Christ himself. If you can imagine such a thing, that is a, a divine love far beyond any human comprehension. But, but every grain, every moment, every nanosecond of pain and grief and despair and sorrow and heartache and disease has all come because we didn't believe Him. And He hates what that has done to His people. And He says, believe me. And the Gospel goes out. And what does He say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe the message. Believe what I'm telling you is the truth. And I tell you that it is when we believe Him that in that act of loving Him that our hearts get full. Because the doubt leaves. Is your relationship with Him suffering? Intimacy with Him gone away? Believe Him. Love Him. He loves you. Love Him back. Believe Him. Believe that what He said is authentic and true and absolute and inviolable and unshakable and impossible to be thwarted or hindered. Does that mean we won't suffer, that we won't wrestle with things, that we won't struggle, that we won't have heartache and difficulty. No, we live in a sinful world, all brought on by the fact that we failed to believe. If you're not a Christian here this morning, your issue right now is that you do not believe. You have not believed him. He said, all that come unto me, I'll in no wise cast out. He said there's forgiveness for your sin. He says that there's reconciliation to the Father that you can have. He says 
You can have eternal life and the promise of redemption and everything that sin has brought into this world reversed and then, and then so transcendently changed that it's never entered into the heart or, man of, heart or mind of man. It's impossible for us to imagine. And he's saying, believe that. Believe my message. Believe me, you're a, a sinner and you need forgiveness and restoration. Believe me. And believe me that if you come in my son's name and trust his death at Calvary, you'll have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. And you'll be kept for that as though guarded with a garrison of angels. Believe me. Believe my promise that I'll never leave you nor forsake you even unto the end of the age. Believe me that I will redeem every lousy thing that's happened to you in this life. Believe me. See, that's what he's saying. Believe me, the, the sorrow is temporary. Believe me, the pain as, as excruciating and as wicked and as unbearable as it is will one day not only vanish, but be rewarded with infinite pleasure. Believe me. That's the call. And when we believe Him, oh, our hearts fill. Our hearts begin to overflow. See, He loved you before you believed, child of God. When you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, but the love didn't fill you because you had no capacity to love Him. None. He needs to give that to us. And when He does, oh, Everything changes. Everything changes. Heavenly Father, how desperately we need to learn the holy skill of loving You back. You tell us that we love You because You first loved us. And we know that affection birthed in our hearts, those here who already have partaken of your saving grace. Those who aren't here right, who are here right now and haven't partaken, they know, even as I've spoken these words, Father, they, they know they don't have a heart for you. They know that even while I talk about that, it's just a dead sentiment. That there's no, nothing in their heart that rises up to, and, and treats you as lovely and desirable. They, they know that. That that can only come from you. But for my brother and sister here who, who do know you, and they, they know how you've removed the fear of impending wrath, and how you've made known to them the glory of your love in the picture of Christ at Calvary, in the fullness of His outspread love and grace, shedding His blood on our behalf. That fear's been removed, but... But Father, there are times when our hearts are still empty. You've poured out infinite love into us and still at times we feel empty. And it's because we've not learned how to love you back. It's not that you need it, it's that we need it. We want to believe you. 
And some of us here this morning are just like that man who came to Jesus desiring that his son would be healed. And Jesus told him, anything is possible if you'll believe. And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And it's like we can believe you for some things, Father, but we don't believe you all the way across the board. Our faith is still little. It's still few. It isn't applied to everything in life. And I pray that you'll assist us today to to begin to love you in response the way that it means love to you. And first and foremost, to believe you, to take you at your word. You've proven yourself to us over and over and over again, and we've let go of it. But we come today to do that very thing. Will you send your Spirit to assist us, to work it in us, that we might be filled with the fullness of God, even as Paul prays in Ephesians. Oh, rooted and grounded in love. Father, work that in us. Make us a people zealous to love you in return, beginning by believing you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.